Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. 1 Thessalonians is a letter written to the church at Thessalonica. It comes from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who were the founders of the church there. The church had recently been established, and they are now experiencing challenge and persecution. And the letter is sent to encourage them, to build them up, and encourage them to remain faithful. They're suffering this persecution because of their commitment to serve our God exclusively. In the culture around them, it was polytheistic, so you could serve multiple gods, and there were others who didn't understand, what is your commitment to only serve this God? You also need to serve the God that we've chosen as the patron of this field of work or of this city or of this area. Why can't you do both? And they're saying, no, our sole commitment is to Jesus Christ and to the one true living God. And for that, they're suffering some persecution. This was common throughout the Roman Empire. There are two major sections to the letter. The first one is chapters 1 through 3. The second section is chapters 4 and 5. And a prayer concludes each section. It may have been when Paul finished chapter 3, or what we call chapter 3, he thought he was finished, and after a little more thought, decided there was a little bit more to say. Or he may have just reached a point to where in his writing, he says, let's just stop and pray right now. I've been in meetings where as we talk about something, someone will say, why don't we stop and just pray about that right now? So we don't know which of those is occurring. In chapter one, right at the beginning in the greeting, your translation may say Paul's Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. Silvanus is just another way to refer to Silas. Verses 2 through 10 of chapter 1 praises their faith and the example that they are setting. Their faith is working itself out through love, even in the midst of persecution. Faith working through love, we also hear in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, another letter of Paul. God has chosen these people, these believers, to be a part of God's people just as assuredly as God chose Israel. They are known because of the works of their faith, the labors of their love, and the steadfastness of their hope, which we see in verse 3. They're also known for their words, for the power of the Holy Spirit, which has come to them and, and is working in them. And they are an example to other believers where their story is being told in other churches. It is encouraging them. It is also a witness to those locally who may not be believers yet, who are able to see and observe them. So even though they are suffering, their suffering is not in vain because the way they are handling what is happening to them is encouraging other believers all throughout the places where churches are being founded, and it is witnessing to those who don't yet know Jesus around them. In chapter 2, um we're told when Paul and them came to found this church, they were opposed by people locally. 
there was opposition to the gospel from the minute it began to be preached. So it's not really a surprise to these believers that they're being persecuted. There was always opposition and persecution to the gospel. Now that they have become believers, the believers have become the object of that persecution rather than those who originally came and preached the gospel to them. Yet those who came and preached the gospel, Paul and Silas and and probably Timothy as well, they came and did so even in the face of opposition, and they did it with pure motives. They didn't come to be popular, to gain power, to be famous, or to live easy. They came and shared this gospel because they truly wanted the people to know Jesus and to connect with God and the promises available to us in Jesus Christ. They didn't want to live off of these people. This was not an easy living. And they tried not to be a burden. They did, however, ask some things of the believers there. We see that in verse 7. They asked for some support, just not more than the believers could bear to do. They didn't ask for more than they were able. Paul tells us in others of his writings that a laborer is worth his or her wages. Um, it, we should support those who tend for us, who care for our spirits and our souls. There's nothing wrong with ministers having a salary. There's nothing wrong with a minister being devoted full-time to ministry. We also have bivocational ministers, and we see that at times Paul was bivocational, and at times he was fully dedicated to the ministry. Where we get off the rails is when ministers are living too easy off of the believers, when the support outpaces what a congregation is able to bear, or when someone is getting rich and living high off of the donations of believers. They're kind of taking advantage. That shouldn't happen, and Paul is saying that is not what happened here. Not only did they come and share the gospel with the people in Thessalonica, but they got to know them. They came to love them dearly. This is what happens when we pastor people for a while. We come to know them. We come to love them. Every transfer to a new appointment is a heartbreak for most ministers because we come to love you as our people. We're entrusted with your care. It's sometimes very painful for us because congregations who are used to their ministers moving tend to disconnect fairly easily. So once it's announced that we're moving, you kind of pull back and we're kind of heartbroken, even though we may be excited about a new opportunity. But that also means that wherever we serve and pastor, we come to love people. Our circle of love and networking and those we consider family of our heart grows with every place that we are able to serve. These Gentile believers in Thessalonica are being rejected and mistreated by their fellow Gentiles. Paul reminds them that the same thing has happened to Jewish believers. Jewish believers have been rejected and mistreated by fellow Jews who didn't accept the gospel. This means that the believers in Thessalonica can find encouragement not only from other Gentile believers, but from other Jewish believers, that what knits us together as members of the body of Christ is our commitment to Christ over other things like race, ethnicity, um, country, all of those things. There, being a believer in Christ bonds us and unites us. 
In verse 16, right at the end of the chapter, we see the phrase, at last, at least I see that in my New Revised Standard Version. This could also be translated for a purpose, and you may have that in the translation you're using. Those who are persecuting um, and suffering, their persecution is a result of their sin and their refusal to give up their sin. And that refusal to give up sin, to recognize that God is calling us to repentance, means that they find themselves opposed to God. But even that, God will simply use their opposition to bring some good from that as well. And that good in this case is the development and the strengthening of God's children. This is very similar to some things that Paul writes to the Roman church in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, and verses 25 through 32. A new section of the letter begins in chapter 2, verse 17, and moves into chapter 3. Paul and, and Silas and Timothy, Paul and Silas in particular, want very much to come back to the Thessalonians, to visit with them again, to say more, to encourage them, and to check on them. But they just haven't been able. Very familiar with that. Often I have plans for the day, things I want to do, and I'm just not able to do it all. Paul and Silas have just not been able to take a trip back to Thessalonica. And so finally they send Timothy alone to go and check on them. And he's brought them a good report, which encouraged them. The Thessalonians are being faithful, even under the pressure of persecution. Paul was a little worried. He was concerned, especially because they are new believers. He was concerned that because faith was new to them, that they might abandon and go back to their old practices, but they have not. Spiritual commitment and maturity often have very little to do with the length of time since our conversion. You can have been a follower of Christ and a member of a church for years and years and years and still very much be an infant in the faith. On the other hand, you will come across people who have only been a follower of Jesus for a very short time, a few months or a couple of years, who have a very deep and abiding faith. And it's because they immerse themselves in the Word of God, in prayer, in spiritual practices. They let the Holy Spirit search their heart and make them authentic believers, finding ways to apply their faith in all situations. Growing in grace is a decision and a choice, and you have to make it in order to grow. And then we have a prayer in verses 11 through 13 that ends this first portion of the letter. I'm going to go ahead and talk about um, chapters 4 and 5 in this podcast. They are the second section of the letter. Paul goes on to warn them especially about sexual sin. In that culture, in the Roman Empire, it became very sexualized, a very licentious culture. There are many who believe that this loss of sexual ethics and morals was part of the unraveling of the empire. It's one of the reasons they show concern over the decay of morals in other cultures, including our country and the United States. But Paul warns them about sexual sin in particular. In verse 3, Paul says that God desires, desires our sanctification. We know that God's prevenient grace 
that's the grace of God drawing us into relationship, nudging us back toward God. Then there is justifying grace. That's the moment when we accept the relationship that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. One of the ways the Bible refers to that is we are translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are credited, if we had an accounting column set up, we're credited the righteousness of Jesus, or we are imputed. God treats us as though we are righteous, looking at us through the righteousness of Christ. This is grace and mercy. This is getting what we have not earned and do not deserve. But God doesn't just desire to credit us with righteousness. God desires to actually make us righteous. This is what we Wesleyans refer to as sanctifying grace. God loves us just as we are, but does not leave us as we are. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He wants us to become sanctified. In verse 9, these people in Thessalonica, they are loving people. But Paul urges them to always be mindful of doing the loving thing, particularly when we are being persecuted or mistreated. It's easy to want to return what we're getting, what we're receiving. And in our pain, we forget to be loving. We become almost like an, a hurt animal. Sometimes when you're trying to rescue an animal that has been injured, it will bite you or scratch you or lash out at you because it's hurting and it, it doesn't know how. We can be that way. When we are being mistreated, we can forget to be loving. And Paul is saying, I know you to be loving people. Don't forget it in the midst of your pain. And don't just be loving to other believers. Be loving and kind to everyone. That would include those who are persecuting you. That's what Jesus says is love your enemies and pray for those who mistreat you. And that's so much easier said than done. Paul encourages the Thessalonians to live quietly. Um, don't cause a scene. Don't draw undue attention to yourself. Work hard and take care of your business. Handle your affairs. Handle them wisely. A new section begins in chapter 4, verse 13, and runs through chapter 5, verse 11. This portion is talking about the coming of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus. We know that Paul was thoroughly convinced that Jesus would return in his lifetime during that generation, that he would see the second coming of Christ. In Methodist theology, we do not have a rapture theory there's no promise or guarantee that we will always escape from persecution. The promise we have is that we are never alone, even through the difficult times. Paul himself experienced this. There are times when we are delivered from the difficult situation, where our disease is healed, where the person being mean to us is removed from our life or from that situation, where the relationship is healed. But there are times when it is not. There was a time when Paul and Silas were miraculously delivered from prison. There were other times where he had to sing and find joy in the prison. And we know at the end of Paul's life, he's imprisoned. And yet, even in the midst of that, he witnesses to his faith. He preaches the word. He writes letters to encourage people. The same is true for us when we talk about longevity and end times. 
we sometimes have to suffer. Right now, all over the world, there are Christians who are literally dying for their faith and their commitment to Jesus. We are not always delivered, miraculously removed from a situation, but God is with us even in those times. Paul, however, is reminding them that Christ will return. Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I do, I will come back again. We believe as Christians that Jesus is returning, that he will come back as Lord and King, and he will reign over his kingdom. But apparently among the Thessalonians, there were people who were worried that those people who were dying before Christ returns were not going to get to be a part of Christ's kingdom. Because they were no longer living on earth, they were not going to get to live in God's kingdom. And Paul assures them that the God who was who resurrected Jesus Christ will have no trouble resurrecting those who have died. The picture that Paul gives us here of Christ's return is that those who are dead will rise and those who are living will rise and we will meet him in the air and we will immediately escort him back to the earth for the consummation of his kingdom. Cross-reference this with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, and Romans 8, 18 through 23. Um, this picture reminds me of the triumphal entry of that celebratory parade environment, only now we're picturing it as um, a celebration of Christ's coming again into his kingdom instead of just the coming into the city on the day of the triumphal entry. Chapter 5, Paul goes on to say, don't worry about when this will happen. Don't worry about when Christ is coming back. We always have those who are saying, Christ is going to return on May 12th, 1982. The minute I hear that, I stop listening to the people who are saying that. Jesus told us when he was on earth that no one would know the day or the hour for the second coming. Jesus went so far as to say that when he had put on flesh and was walking here on earth, that even he didn't know the day and the time. We won't know that. We're not supposed to waste our time trying to figure out the things that are God's to decide and handle. Just be ready. If we're always ready, then it won't matter when it happens. We'll always be prepared. That's what I hear Paul saying here. There are people who think there will be no consequences for the way they are living. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that God balances the scales. He either does it by imputing to us the righteousness of Christ because we've repented and come to him, and then he makes us more like Christ, or he does it by giving people justice eventually the scales are balanced, even if they're not right now. And those people, they may think they're beyond God's grasp, but they are not. They're saying, peace and security, I'm in charge, I'm in control, all is well. But they're not as in charge as they think they are. They are not in as peaceful and secure a position as they think. They just don't see the spiritual realities. We are assured throughout Scripture that evil does not prosper, that God sees it and God will take care of it. Paul talks about some armor of God, the breastplate of faith and love. 
The breastplate protects the body, the central trunk, the important organs, especially the heart. And he talks about the helmet of salvation, which protects the head or protects your mind. Paul has more to say about the armor of God in his letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. So Paul is reminding them that their heart, their important organs, and their minds are protected by the Holy Spirit. And they need to encourage one another to stay faithful. His final words and concluding thoughts begin in chapter 5, verse 12, where he kind of sums up all he's trying to tell them. Take care of and respect those who are leading you, who are tending to you spiritually. Urge one another to be productive and not to get discouraged. Don't become bitter no matter what they do to you. And talk to God. Stay in love with God. Stay connected to God. Praise and pray and worship. Look for the blessings that God is giving you. Look for where God is at work and join God there. And keep learning and growing, but be sure that what you're listening to is solid teaching. And then in verse 23 and 24, he offers the second prayer here in this letter. He concludes by saying, pray for us. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are praying for the Thessalonians, and he is saying he wants the Thessalonians to pray for them. The path of discipleship and mentoring, the path of caring for one another's souls works both ways. Paul goes on to say, read this letter to everyone. Not really sure exactly why it needs to be a solemn command to do so. Maybe he's just wanting to say up front that I'm not picking on anyone. I'm not calling anyone in particular out. I'm not just encouraging my favorites or people I am closer to. But from the moment I penned this letter with Silas and Timothy, I intended it for everyone. And I want everyone to hear it, not just those to whom it is delivered. His final phrase is a great blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And with those words, the first letter to the church at Thessalonica ends.